You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. About 15 years ago, I was borrowing my girlfriend's mom's Volvo to run some errands. And I did what I always used to do the first time I got in someone else's car. I went through her CD collection. I realized that kind of makes it sound like I was planning on stealing something, which is not what was happening. I was just looking for something to listen to. This would have been about 2008 or so. It's right in that brief period where smartphones existed that could play music, but parents were still mostly driving cars where they'd paid extra for a nice CD sound system because they thought that was the only way to listen to music in the car besides the radio. Another thing that was still true in 2008 is that when big music releases would come out, labels would put together what they called boxed sets. I'm sure some of you listening must remember these. It was a literal box with all of the CDs in this particular collection of music, different cover art on each one, and extensive liner notes full of Easter eggs like studio photos and lyrics to the songs. And in rare cases, original essays about the music in the collection. And these essays were often unique to the boxed set. You couldn't read them anywhere else. And so on this particular day, in this particular station wagon, I happened upon this one particular boxed set, the soundtrack to the HBO series The Wire, which had all the music from the show and also one of those essays. It was this really extensive, very thoughtful reflection on the writing process of The Wire by the show's creator, David Simon. I'm not sure I even would have seen it if I hadn't borrowed the car to go buy beer that day. But because I did... I ended up sitting in the grocery store parking lot reading this essay for about 45 minutes, and it totally changed my perspective on art. From WALTFM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And this David Simon essay has been on my mind recently because a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to participate in this panel discussion called The Limitations of Truth, which is a great title for a panel discussion. It was the brainchild of Eleanor Hyde, the co-creator of one of my favorite podcasts, Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic Mystery. Eleanor asked me if I'd like to join her and another producer named T.K. Dutes for a conversation about when it's important to acknowledge subjectivity in storytelling or beyond just acknowledging, actually lean into it and use it to deepen the immersive impact of that story. It's something Eleanor has thought about a lot during the writing and production of Unwell, which is a fictional story with supernatural elements that also deals with very real family psychology. Can you guess why it's one of my favorite shows? TK, meanwhile, has been the creative mastermind behind, among other things, the Weeksville Project, a historical fiction show based on the life of a family living in a 19th century community of free African-Americans in a neighborhood of what is now Brooklyn. All of our projects bring up a lot of thorny questions about what it actually means to tell the truth. And so recently we all got on this call to discuss it. And that's what you're going to hear on today's bonus episode, including some extended discussion of that life-changing essay that I read all those years ago, And as we've been doing each week here on this little series of bonus episodes, some news about the new season of Family Ghosts, which I am both excited and nervous to share with you. That's all coming up right after the break. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back to Family Ghosts. As I told you before the break, this week we're bringing you a panel discussion about subjectivity in storytelling, featuring yours truly alongside Eleanor Hyde and T.K. Dutess. The title of this panel was The Limitations of Truth, and I started us out by talking about a pet peeve of mine. I think there is a tremendous illusion in audio storytelling particularly in the in the documentary space, that there is something objective happening. And mm-hmm. I personally would attribute a lot of that to the rise in popularity of televised docuseries, um, which I think do this this trick <laughs> on us a lot of the time, which is they don't have a narrator, uh, mm-hmm. at least mm-hmm. not one that we can see. Um, they're usually presented as just... Uh, a series of conversations without any kind of narration and a story that's unfolding seemingly organically from conversation to conversation, which has the convenient effect of hiding the presence of any kind of editorial person that, or a team of people that have made the choices of how this, this story is being presented. And I think the thirst for that kind of storytelling then bleeds over into audio storytelling and makes people think that the same sort of thing is happening. Um, Mm. And it isn't. It never is. And I guess I would argue that what is so magnetizing about nonfiction storytelling is the subjectivity of the person who's telling the story because oftentimes it's a story that you wouldn't know about otherwise. It often doesn't involve famous people. It often doesn't involve an otherwise newsworthy tale, but it is something that by dint of this one person's obsession, we have now been sucked into the the narrative unfolding of it. And what's really fun about it in audio, I think when when done really well, is the fact that we we get put we get to ride along inside the person's head as they as they go through this journey. And I guess all of this kind of came to a head for me personally on Family Ghosts, which is the show that I make, because I felt like there was a way in which we were sort of skating um, in the, the first three seasons of our show on that documentary privilege, I'll call it, that we get from a lot of televised documentaries by just kind of coasting on the inherent interest that people have in nonfiction storytelling that has a mysterious element to it. When in reality, we had not done such a great job in most of our episodes of acknowledging our subjectivity, of saying, this is, this is one person's attempt to unravel this because they have an agenda, which is that they feel like revealing this particular piece of truth would be really good for them. <laughs> and by extension, is really good for all of you listening, hopefully, because you're invested in their quest. But we need to we need to be really clear about why it's happening the way it's happening. Where where is the line at which we have left the interpretive realm and are just stating the facts? I I don't actually know where that is. All that made a lot of sense to me, Sam and Eleanor. Um, and I think I'd like to add that 
you know, obje- objectivity. While, while we're talking about subjectivity, for the moment, real quick, objectivity is like based on this, you know, non, you know, not having a bias, right? Mm-hmm. Like facts, figures, experts. But subjectivity, and I think the work that we are all participating in is like based on, you know, the people. And most of the audio fiction pieces, because I deal in, uh, often deal in black historical fiction and the history part is a fact, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, The history part is a fact. And then the people that the world is built around is based on a time and a place that we can only surmise. So that part is all up to me and, and the writers. You know, for Weeksville, we listened to people's voices to people's oral histories and their grandmas talking about, mm. you, know, you know, living in that t- time and then also took, taking tours of the space. So we literally ensconced ourselves in, in the spirit of the time. And that's what you would say is subjective. But I think if you do your research and you're really thoughtful about it, you can come out with something that is really true to form. I've run it by some researchers and the researchers said, oh, this sounds about right. And I, I'm going to, those are my experts. Those are the people that mm-hmm. give me legitimacy, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. One, tell me if this is a fair characterization, TK, but I think something else that's very provocative about that approach, if if I'm understanding it correctly, is that you're also telling stories from parts of history that have not been told in the way that they should historically. And so by creating any space at all for an alternative narrative of this history, you're calling into question the quote-unquote objectivity of the way we usually learn about it. Yeah, I mean, because like you, you just you just hit the nail on the head. Like objectivity in itself is biased, <laughs> you know, in that we're trying to not be biased and we're trying to hold groups and people and and whoever like we're holding people to a standard that only exists for the majority or 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 whatever the powerful you know, the, the yeah the powerful, the powerful like you know the folks on top are making the rules so yes sam exactly and think, that and i think i don't know so my so my show as a fiction piece deals very actively with these themes of the fallibility of memory both for an individual, but also for like a family or a community or what have you. And it is, I, I think that because we deal with that so much in our show, I have been thinking about it a lot over the past few years. And TK, one of the things that I think is so powerful about historical fiction is that there are certain parts of history that didn't get recorded in a way where you can really understand someone's personal life experience because of the inequities of how history works, right? Like it is much, much easier for me to go find representations of white women who look like me from an era than it is to go try and find representations of, you know, first person narratives from black women of the same era. And so the tools that you have, one of the really powerful tools I think we have to try and like bring that history back to life and give it another chance is fiction. I think there's something really powerful about that, about like finding ways to engage with that history that is like emotionally true and like engages with uh, the research and like takes the time to think about it and try to imagine into like, what would it have been like to live at that time? Even if like, you know, 
you can't go read someone's diary because they all they they didn't they weren't preserved or they weren't valued enough to make it to today. Right. Um, I think yeah. there's something really powerful about that. I agree, and I think there's also an interesting conversation to be had here about in in telling stories from perspectives that are not heard from frequently enough. There can sometimes be a temptation, I think, to be somewhat didactic in telling those stories rather than just being truly immersive, just dropping people directly into those perspectives. Um, And I would imagine I don't have as much experience with telling those kind of fictional narratives, but I'd be curious to know from both of you, how do you feel that pull to be sort of explanatory in the way that you frame up the story or do you find it better to just kind of challenge the listener to meet you where you are? Uh, I definitely say a little bit of both um, because I'm so curious, right? So I'm like, well, if if I'm so curious, then everybody else is. And I just want to explain everything. And then I have to remember, well, that's why I'm a producer and not a writer, right? (laughs) Um, Because listen, y'all, when I went to tell the writer, I said, listen, I need all of this jam packed into here. Can you help me? And they were like, okay, wait, hold on. First of all, um, <laughs> let, let me make it interesting for you. And I was like, whoa, I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so, you know, letting folks do their job. Like we don't also have to do everything, but also knowing that like, that's part of the trust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, trusting someone to also bring it to life in a way that doesn't overdo it and noticing or re- realizing when you have to pull back, which I had to do and and then realizing when it's already good, right? So um, the first piece that I ever worked on historical black fiction was uh, The Comet by W.E.B. Du Bois. And that was before I knew anything about adapting things <laughs> for other things. So literally I found the I found the PDF. I didn't even count the pages. I was like, oh, this is great. I could read if I could read this in a half hour, I, <laughs> we can produce this. I didn't realize that one page equals one minute thing. So uh, I was absolutely over in over my head, but guess what? I think that no one could write that or ad- adapt that in a, in a better way than the original writer who is a scholar literally mm-hmm. of that time, right? Like even if I passed it to another writer, I would probably have palpitations because, you know, this is a scholar. This is a well-respected person of the 1920s and 30s that has spent their whole life basically uh, co-founding the NAACP. Like, I can't do better than that. So actually having that be my first experience kind of um, reined me in so that when we wrote Weeksville Project, um, it was like, okay, this, there's here's the guy in the comment W. D. B. Du Bois. He gave us all these. He gave us a world where we can see exactly what it was between the races. Uh, the majority of the time, black versus white. Right. Um, now in the Weeksville project, we had to write that, and I was like, we have to write it in a way that we're not like. ODing on, <laughs> you know, this is what happened, and blah, 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 blah. we we literally we saved that for the story of New York. Um, because the story of New York is facts and figures and dates, but mm-hmm. the story of the Black people in Brooklyn, New York is experiential. I think that's really smart. I mean, I, I, the thing that this is triggering in my brain as I'm thinking about Unwell and how we approach a lot of this work is that 
we really, really wanted to prioritize in the way that we told that fictional story that Mount Absalom, the fictional town where the story is set, is a very diverse place. And there are people who live in that town who are in our story who have really diverse experiences. And also, it is not a story that is like specifically about a Black experience, even though our protagonist is Black. It is not specifically a story about being queer, even though a lot of our characters are queer. And I think we have historically always tried to make the story about the weird things that are happening in the town and the way that this family is coming to be or healing or growing first and foremost. And then those things are supported and influenced by the specificity of all of the characters in the story rather than it being a story about anyone's individual identity. So like maybe my favorite example of this is that in the second season, we have a new character who shows up early in the second season who uh, how do I explain this? She is she's the first character who shows up in the story who's um, self-aware about the fact that she is a ghost. Like she knows <laughs> it. She shows up and she's like, hi, I know I'm a ghost. I've been dead for 100 years. Isn't that weird? Um, and she is so she is sort of coming from a perspective of the 1910s and was also a uh, immigrant from the UK of East Asian descent. So there's a lot of layers there, right? Like she has a whole background of having parents who came from uh, Pakistan before it was Pakistan, growing up in the UK and then coming to the States and all of the like layers of that. Um, that story doesn't really unfold to like quite a ways into getting to know her, but it is always present and it is always part of who she is and how she is making choices about the people around her. Um, in an early draft of like introducing Nora and getting to know her as a character, there was a moment where she was talking to somebody, but she didn't want to appear in front of them because she knew that, if she just in herself introduced herself as Nora, then no one would have any way of knowing that she is not white until she actually like shows up in the room. And we played with that for a little while. And then at some point we were like, this is an audio piece. It's hard to, it's hard to read that moment. It's like, it, it wasn't quite working. And we ended up getting rid of that, but there was this interesting, um, there was still, there is still, I think this interesting layer in that introductory scene where she is like waiting for the shoe to drop where this per she's waiting for the moment where this person she's talking to is going to go, okay, I'm not going to take you seriously because you're not white. And that moment never comes because she's interacting with somebody who is not from the 1910s and has a different kind of way of thinking of like engaging with her. Right. Um, and so while it isn't super overt, I think it is always still kind of there under the surface of the story. That's a great example to me because it's it's such an illustration of you're saying the thing without saying the thing. And just to go a step further with this, my asking of this question is kind of spurred by this piece that I read once that I have not been able to stop thinking about since then, which was by David Simon, who created The Wire. And I don't know how people on the call feel about David Simon. Um, I know he's somewhat controversial figure, but the thing that he said in this piece when he was talking about The Wire specifically is that a 
thing people say about the wire, I won't say criticism is that it's, they, uh, the characters almost never refer to each other by their names. So it's hard to know what anybody's name is. Um, it's hard to figure out, you know, in the hierarchy of both the drug gang that, uh, we're following and the Byzantine bureaucracy of the Baltimore police department that we're following. It's hard to know whose rank is what and who outranks who and all this stuff. Um, and he was speaking to that criticism in this interview. And he said, the reason he didn't include that stuff is because that's not how those people would actually talk to each other. Um, they wouldn't say, you know, as you know, uh, Lieutenant who is two ranks above me, um, right. and who I first met when we were on foot patrol, you know, nobody would right. say those things. And oftentimes, you know, we don't address people by their names every time we talk to them because we're not in real life trying to communicate to an audience what's happening. We're just going through it. And he said that he made those choices specifically as a reaction against his experience of writing for So The Wire was obviously an HBO series. And he said he made these narrative choices based on the experience of writing a different show called Homicide Life on the Streets, which was on broadcasts. And that he was told all the time in meetings for that show, you have to keep the lowest common denominator in mind. And he said he specifically with The Wire decided, and these are his words, fuck the lowest common denominator. What keeps me up at night is the idea that somebody who's from one of the worlds that I'm attempting to portray would see the way I've portrayed them and go, that's not how it is. He doesn't get it. Absolutely. And that he thought that that would work because we as humans are not actually the lowest common denominator, but rather have an inherent desire to feel like we're in the club, to feel like we get it. And so we're going to do the mental gymnastics on our own to figure out all the intricacies yeah. of a dynamic in a drug gang so or in a yeah. police department, because we want to be the ones who understand and who can maybe turn around and explain it to other people. You ever notice that? Like we do, we do the mental gymnastics every time we retell yeah. a plot from a show or something. And I think we're all, and y'all let me know if this makes sense to y'all. Um, <laughs> um, I feel like, this is a totally acceptable thing. Like we've grown up with this concept watching TV, right? Like we can follow it. We understand how it is to like explain too much or too little, but in podcasting and in making audio stories, we're stuck between this world of journalistic thought and theatrical television thought. Right. So we're, we're constantly trying to paint an accurate picture, but then we don't want, you know, whoever's in charge to say that's not true, you know, that's not how it looks. <laughs> but then if someone tweets me and goes, that's not how it looks in Baltimore, TK, I'm gonna be more stressed than if an editor did that to me. Is does that mm. ever like does that make that's sense for y'all? Absolutely. So that's interesting because we our show has gotten the critique that we are painting an unrealistic portrayal of a rural town in Ohio because it is too queer, too diverse, and there are, apparently are no Republicans. <laughs> and, and I have decided that I don't care. <laughs> there's a way in which I think that's a valid critique, and there's a way in which I think that it isn't. And I have decided that for the story that we are trying to tell, that I don't care. Um, for example, so, so like we have in our show a non-binary character, and one of our writer's room rules is that... Um, this story takes place in a fictional world where 
everyone in the town is okay with that. There is no one. It is we, and it was important to us mostly because it was important to us that that um, misgendering someone was not like a code that we use for bad guys. That like the good guys would be would know how to do it, and the bad guys wouldn't. Like that was it was important to us that it not become a stand-in for like morality or like good versus bad or whatever or like on our side or against us or whatever um and i am cognizant of the fact that like that is probably not accurate like that is that is i mean even in my like very queer friendly urban life that i lead like not super accurate uh but it's a choice we made and i think it is supportive of the story we're trying to tell and so i don't really care that it's maybe not accurate (laughs) (laughs) sometimes the story is just a story right you know i think also another thing that happens a lot right now is audiences are are now getting very used to letting us know right like creators letting creators know and that gets hairy because we make things in a way that sometimes we don't even know how we made them. So Mm -hmm. how, like for me to begin to explain the depth of a process and then apply it to you, a random person that tweeted me is like, it's a a lot. This is, I was having this conversation kind of about like critical feedback with somebody recently in this, in it's like close to this thing you're saying TK that like, um, for us, at least for unwell, uh, it is very, it is often very easy for me to tell when we're getting critical feedback that feels like it comes from a place that is um, not in good faith, that I don't feel like is coming from a place of like a good faith wanting to engage with the, the actual material. And those I have, I don't know what taught me this skill, but like I have somehow developed the ability to just kind of like go, you know what, then I don't really care what you think, <laughs> <laughs> put, it, put it away. And on the other hand, like, I think that there are lots of things in our show that if a person wanted to critique or engage with in good faith and say, like, so our main character is biracial, which is obviously not me. Like, I'm white, in case that's not obvious for anybody listening. Um, and I, I think my go-to example of this is, like, if somebody were to come to us and say, man, I really wish the show would spend more time and attention on the how Lily being biracial affects her relationship with her parents. I'd be like, that's a really interesting piece of feedback. And you're right. Maybe we could have done that better. There are reasons that's not where we focus our attention and I could get into them. And I, I mean, I don't think the show is like deeply harmed by it, but I think that's a really good faith thing to ask and to engage with. And I would be perfectly happy to have that conversation. But that to me feels very different than the people who like, tell me I'm I'm signaling by putting a land acknowledgement in the front of my show you know like, right. that's it just antagonistic <laughs> right those point. people yeah. are not in good faith and 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 for me like those I don't know I think TK when you talk about like uh somebody coming at you and being like this doesn't feel real to my experience yeah th- there are good faith conversations to be had there that can be really hard when you're like I'm putting this work out to yeah. millions of people possibly. And I don't know, I don't know their experiences and I don't know how they align with mine. Yeah. Uh, I think if the- people do the the work in the front end, which is like all pre-production, all the research. And I, I'm sure Sam, like, I actually want to ask you about like 
I'm wondering now you are taking specific families, like these are pods of, of people inside of another bigger pod of a human experience inside this universal experience, right? Like, um, do the people inside the story ever come back at you? Not the, not the person that you're working with one-to-one, but like, let's say like an aunt or a grandma and they're like, nah, bro, like he didn't, he didn't tell you the right iteration. Like, how does that even look? That is a fascinating question. And it, Gives like, me who gets hives. to be the expert, you know? <laughs> like, who gets to be the expert of a family story? The guy that got to you first? <laughs> right, right. So the answer to that question is yes, honestly. Um, and awesome, I will awesome. I will freely admit that we do on the show basically privilege the viewpoint of the person and agenda of the person who brings us the story. With very few exceptions, that has not led to any situations where we have that person's fundamental credibility is called into question. I think the pre-production that we do is to make sure that this person is not bringing us a story with malicious intent and the desire to mischaracterize or misrepresent things in a way that would present people in an unfair light, would tell people's story in such an overly editorialized way that it makes it, it twists their perspective and, um, doesn't portray them and portrays them in an unfair way. I think we try to use the pre-production process to filter out that kind of motive and can't, and honestly, we really don't get a lot of people coming to us with, with that sort of agenda. I will say, however, that there has been one very critical exception to that. Um, and I don't know if I handled it properly. And that is, we've done two trilogies on the show. Um, and one of them is called The Love Family. And it's about this cult that flourished in Seattle in the um, early 70s through the early 80s. And more so than any other story we did, that is a story that I reported. Um, it was brought to us indirectly by a woman who was born into the cult and had some questions about her mom. And in the course of trying to tell her mom's story, we realized we also needed to tell the story of the cult or else the mom's story would make no sense. So we privileged this woman's perspective in the telling of her mom's story. That's the third episode. The first two episodes are me telling the story of the cult, which means that I have tasked myself with the responsibility of not slandering anyone in an environment where deeply heinous, exploitive, horrific things were happening. And in doing so, I told the story in a way that one of our key sources felt made the cult look very, like didn't talk enough about the good intentions that the group had at its inception. Mm -hmm. And he wrote to me afterwards and said, you have used only the parts of the story I told you that confirm your larger point of view that this was an inherently flawed institution and you didn't talk at all about all the beautiful parts of it. Um, and I didn't really know what to say to that because it is true to his experience that... Also, it's a cult. Right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> exactly. No, TK, you're right. Yeah. And, and that is the, that's the very much the call that I made is yeah. 
I'm sure your, you know, your intentions initially in changing your names to nouns like compassion and divinity and hope, um, and taking a bunch of LSD and thinking about the ways we're all connected. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with that. When it tipped over into financial exploitation and sexual abuse of children, you kind of forfeit the integrity of the intentions you originally had. And, you know, it's not as though I was implicating this one particular person in facilitating those terrible things, although it would not have been hard to directly implicate him in those things. And I I think, you know, we like you were saying, TK, in terms of talking to experts and listening to old tape, you know, we made sure that we played this for a lot of people who have been victimized by similar organizations. And we made sure to get multiple perspectives on the story from a lot of people so that we weren't just editorializing our way through it. Um, But I didn't know what to say to him when he sent me this email. Um, And what I honestly ended up saying is, you know, if you would be interested in continuing the conversation, I, I would be happy to do that. Um, And, you know, you come to me if that's something you want to do. And I unsurprisingly haven't heard from him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it definitely gets weird. A question that that gives me that I'd be curious to know you all's take on is when it comes to the, the value, the value statement of, we have to tell the stories from the perspective of the people who experienced it to give people this insider experience that we, we seem to share a belief with David, David Simon, that, that they as audience members inherently are seeking something I asked myself after I read this article and thought about how compelling it was to me is, well, why, why does that work? Why does it work to tell stories that way? And the only thing I've been able to come up with, and this is what I'm curious to see if you guys agree with is, well, I think that works if the characters that you are portraying in a way that is true to their actual perspective rather than explanatory and didactic, those characters are involved in such a propulsive enticing drama or mystery or love story or whatever that we want to be insiders in their world because that allows us to participate in the story that they're experiencing. And so absent that propulsive narrative, perhaps we would not make that investment. Yeah. One of the, um, uh, from my theater education, one of the key questions when you come at any story is, um, why is today different than every other day? Mm. It's, it's the it's the Seder Seder Passover dinner question, <laughs> right? Um, I'm familiar. <laughs> uh, and I think that goes to your point about like you need a compelling reason to be here t- today. Um, any room of five real human beings can be entertaining if you like them and they're your friends. <laughs> but in order to actually tell a story. Um, there has to be a reason why something is actually happening today. I don't know. The other thing that it got me thinking about when you sort of were talking about that, the the wire and um, that kind of living into a world like that is, uh, and it has to have a really grounded internal logic. It all has to be there for a reason. So Unwell is a story that is kind of primarily propelled, I think, by there being a mystery and by, you know, there is something weird in this town in this sort of like twin peaksy way and both 
individual characters and also I hope our audience are moved forward by going, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> I would like to understand it. And in order for that to work as a, as a thing to drive forward, uh, we have to, we have to understand what the hell it is. Um, as writers and as producers, we have to know the answers. And I think in a story like The Wire, a lot of that is built off of real things like how police departments work and how gangs work. Um, but inside of, you know, we tell a gothic ghost story. And inside of that, like, our story has all kinds of internal logic that we have built about, like, how ghosts work. And when these spooky things happen, what is causing them? And why? where are those things coming from? And what do they mean? Um, how do each of these different characters in this town understand what is happening? They all have, a inter each one of them individually has an internal logic to what they think is going on. And that internal logic is at odds with each other. And so a lot of the conflict ends up coming from, well, this person thinks that the reason the town is this way is, xyz and this character thinks it's abc and those things are very at odds with each other yeah um i think this kind of this question goes to like the work that i've been doing on open world which mm. is a fiction anthology about possible um better futures right through generally science and technology but really it's about all these different pockets of people and the creators that make those stories and that thing you asked, like what makes this day different than the other days, right? Like now that you've put it in that perspective for me, Eleanor, I see that that's the question they were asking, right? Like yeah. we live in this, the whole reason for open world is because we live in this current world that is very tough to live in. Um, and it has been for a long time. So the question was, can there be something better and can we, can we create it? I would like to offer as an example, a uh, TV show example, another one, Treme. Have y'all ever watched Treme? It was an HBO show. It's very old at this point. Like, I mean, you know, very old with air quotes. Um, <laughs> I think I watched it seven to 10 years ago. And by then it was already a rerun, right? Mm -hmm. So like I had already, it was already on demand. And I found myself, when you said, what makes this day different than the other days? Um, Still in 2020, 10, seven to 10 years later, I think about those characters. Mm -hmm. I think about them in a way that like, I wish I could call them and be like, what y'all doing? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, and it, it kind of weirds me out because it's the only show or the, and the only piece of media that I, that like I do that with. I'm really out here thinking, what happened to that guy? I hope his mothers are right. If this was real life, what would they be doing today? Well, it's Mardi Gras in New Orleans. What would they be doing like in 2020, you know? And and now I want to know what would they be, how would they be living in a pandemic? So, so like when you can have a piece of media that shows you life so real that you want to jump in it, like I feel like that's your subjectivity and that's, and that's your objectivity, right? Like that was real to me in a way that I wanted to live it with them. But also that was a subjective story. <laughs> totally. Well, I feel like I should offer just in the spirit of what we've talked about, that is also a David Simon show. And something that I think is really interesting. I loved Treme as well. And something that I think 
he was doing in that show is really pushing the envelope of this question even further than he was doing with The Wire, which is to say, you know, with The Wire, you have... The, to a certain extent, there's there's tropes at play, which is cops and robbers, right? But with Treme, it was how does recovery from this catastrophic act of God look in a community that was already suffering from abandonment and betrayal? And how does it look from their point of view? And really asking you to, to live in that. And obviously, in the opinion of at least the two of us, it, it, that was a very effective approach. Um, but I think it didn't, it didn't catch fire in quite the same way as some of those other prestige TV series because that is such a challenging thing to ask somebody to do, but it is so gratifying when, as an audience member, you let yourself go there. Yeah, absolutely. So now I think the question for all of us is, you know, do you, is there something, like, could could we be doing more? Because now, talking like how we've been talking for the past couple, you know, uh, 30 plus minutes, I'm like, am I doing enough? Like, are we doing enough? Like, I mean, you guys tell me, what do you think about your worlds? Are you pushing the envelope hard enough? I, I would like to offer what I have decided to do for the new season of Family Ghosts, not as evidence that I am doing enough, but as my testimony about how I am trying to do a better job. Um, mm -hmm. And the answer to that is honestly to, and I, I feel a little nervous about this, um, but the answer is honestly, I'm trying to put more of myself into the show because and I, the reason i'm nervous is because there are too many podcasts that are hosted by straight white guys of which i am one and i do not want to make that problem worse <laughs> however i do feel as though there's a way in which i have not been as honest with the audience and the constituency of people that i would like to listen to the show about where the lines of inquiry that the show explores are coming from, which yeah. is I am a product of my own family circumstances, which have been detailed exhaustively in the podcast. And despite the fact that I have done all of that storytelling, I still don't have answers to the questions that I'm looking for. And fundamentally what family ghost is, is a show about me asking the question, what would it be like to be in a family where we could talk about the things that I felt like we couldn't talk about. And if you don't have that frame on every story that we tell, I don't really think the show makes a lot of sense. And if you do have that, or it doesn't make as much sense as it could. And if you do have that frame, it allows you to say, all right, I know where this person is coming from. Maybe I agree and maybe I don't, but I can put that in my bag with me as I make my way through this world that he's building. I think that's a I, I, hearing you talk about it. It sound it feels to me like a like a way of grounding, like like literally having a grounding wire mm -hmm. to what what is underneath. And mm -hmm. I and I know that they, I have had experiences of consuming other people's stories where I felt like there was a 
a, a, like a bait and switch that happened where suddenly <laughs> I realized that the storyteller was coming from a point of view that like it, it snuck up on me and how, how betraying that can feel. And so like, I don't know that it is a very, very hard thing to do perfectly every time, but I appreciate Sam, your attempt, you know, you're, you're owning and attempting to kind of like find that way to ground it in the reality of like, I am a real person. <laughs> and I bring my stuff to the table. Like, cause of course you do. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, yeah. I, thank uh, you. And I mean, we'll see how it goes. I may do a terrible job, but I feel like and it, I think that's right. That's the thing. Like I, it's interesting, TK, you're asking that question about like, how can we do it better? Or are we doing enough? And I am sitting in a place right now where so we're we're working on both post production for season three and pre production for season four of unwell. And I am also um, in very, very early story development for two new projects, which hopefully will get picked up and come to fruition and everybody will get to hear them. But um, I think the result is that I have been spending a lot of brain space in the last couple of months in um, trying to really understand my role as a creative producer and the relationship that I have with writers in that. Um, I feel an enormous amount of ownership with Unwell and that story, having been involved with it from the very beginning, I feel like there's a lot of my fingerprints on it, but also realizing when I work on something that uh, what it, trying to cultivate what it looks like to get out of the way and let other people's stories and perspectives and what they think is important drive the show. To really try and cultivate my role as someone whose job it is to like, steer someone else's ship and help them get where they're trying to go, not hand them my map and ask them to take me there. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I'm not always, I, sometimes I talk too much. So <laughs> no, you sound like, I mean, you sound like a producer. Like you yeah, sound, exactly. I think, I think that what we need to be okay with is like, this, this is what a producer does, right? Like mm-hmm. this is, this is like the, what we're having this talk is, is really why we got into it, I think, why we got into what we we got into and and what it is now or what it what people get paid money to do at places is really just drive a ship. So yeah. there's a difference between driving a ship and producing something where we're like elevating voices and you know giving these different perspectives on um what a story should be like. And I think that we're all really trying in our own different ways, in our own different genres of storytelling. And I think for me, that looks like, um, I have this insane need to like get inside <laughs> the thing, even with a chat show, you know, like I started working on a new on a, a sh- upcoming show. It's not out yet, so I can't talk about it, but um, I literally just want to live inside the host's brain. So like, you know, I'm just like looking at content by them and I'm, I'm reading and I'm like, this is how I can be the best producer for this person. And then in the fiction world, I want to go listen to the oral histories and talk to the people. And then I think the next step for that is what Issa Rae does now is she makes it possible for people to be uplifted. So now 
how can I do that? Like, you know, I don't know if I have some extra money coming in, do I just like hand it to another creator and be like produced by TK? Like, I just want to, I want to, that's how I want to push the envelope. And I think I want to challenge our colleagues to ask themselves, are you a producer? Are you driving a ship? Well, Ghost Family, on January 14th, 2021, you are going to have your first opportunity to hear what it sounds like for me to embrace my inner ship captain. That's the day the fourth season of Family Ghosts will hit your headphones. And as we have been talking about here on our bonus episode miniseries, me leaning into my role as narrator a little bit more is not the only thing that's going to be different about the new season. The show is also going to be released every two weeks all year long. We're going to have brand new show art. And a week before the new season begins, we are going to be debuting our very first Family Ghosts spinoff, Fisher Family Ghosts, a weekly series of conversations and reflections on the creative legacy of yet another HBO series, a lot of those on the show this week, Six Feet Under. I cannot wait to share all of this with you. And... I would be remiss if I didn't take just a moment to remind you that none of it would be possible without the financial support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. I know it may seem odd to you that I've been coming to you at the end of these episodes to ask you to donate in support of the show, especially since you usually hear sponsorships in the breaks of our episodes. But the fact is, Those advertisements don't even begin to cover the costs of producing work at the level of quality you expect from us here at Family Ghosts. And the contributions of our Patreon supporters are the difference between being able to make the show and not being able to make it. But lest you think I'm just asking you to donate solely out of the goodness of your heart, Kindred Spirits also get sweet perks for just $5 a month. Patreon supporters get early access to all of our stories, hear them ad-free, and get bonus episodes every month. If you found yourself intrigued by this week's conversation with Eleanor Hyde and TK Dutess, it might interest you to know that the full, unedited version of that conversation is available right now in the exclusive feed that only Patreon supporters can access. And there's also another interview in that feed with Eleanor's co-creator on Unwell, Jeffrey Nils Gardner, where we dive deeper into the ghosts and mysteries of Mount Absalom, the Midwestern Ohio town where their story takes place. In the coming months, we're also going to do a new run of t-shirts featuring our new logo for Patreon supporters and a whole lot more. So if you have the means, please consider joining the Kindred Spirits for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And either way, thank you so much for listening. You can find links to Eleanor and TK's work in the show notes for this bonus episode. I am consistently inspired by the shows they make, and I know you will be too. Keep an eye on this feed in the next few weeks for the launch of Fisher Family Ghosts, to be followed shortly thereafter by the premiere of season four of Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. <laughs>